And then the second piece being um, increasing our understandings of trans and non-binary healthcare in the context of menstruation and endometriosis and any other, you know, characteristically quote unquote female um, ailments um, need to be listed and, and people need to be aware that they do have implicit or explicit biases so that they can correct them. Hi, and welcome to the Endo Babe podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Bree. I'm an ultrasound tech turned endometriosis coach, positivity and self-love advocate, a seven on the Enneagram, and I am a proud dog mom. And I'm on a mission to help you live more positively with endometriosis and be happy in your body. On the Endo Babe podcast, we're going to dive deep into all things endometriosis, mindset, self-love, health, and so much more. This is a badass podcast for badass endo babes and i want you to leave this podcast feeling inspired and empowered on your own health journey with more confidence and the belief that you too can have more good days than bad are you with me babe see you in the podcast hello babes and welcome to another episode of the endo babe podcast so this episode is brought to you by my endo mindset reset one-on-one intensives So what these are in my 90-minute one-on-one call to help you clear out old conditioning and old-ass beliefs that are keeping you stuck in your healing journey. In these 90 minutes, we're going to dive deep and figure out what beliefs are holding you back and work on disproving those and letting them go to help release that emotional hold that they have on you so that you can truly believe that you can shift into something new. Why is this important? (laughs) Because if you don't actually believe that you can change or you have these old beliefs like holding you back, then you are going to undermine your healing journey, right? To actually have more good days than bad. If you don't disprove your old beliefs, you actually, and like actually believe them to be untrue, then you can't really move forward. If you think of your brain like a garden, there are flowers and weeds. So it's important to learn how to find that untrue part and disprove your old beliefs and remove those parts like pulling weeds from a garden because you can plant more flowers all you want, you can create new beliefs all you want, but if you don't uproot the old belief, then the weeds are still gonna grow. I'm only offering a limited number of these for the month of May, so if you're interested or you just wanna chat about it, check the show notes for links or reach out to me on Instagram at Chelsea Bree, C-H-E-L-S-E-A-A-A-B-R-I. So these are fucking fantastic, very transformative. You not only get 90 minutes with me, but you get worksheets and I will continually check in on you over the following months to make sure that you're implementing what we talked about so that you can move forward in your healing journey with endometriosis. Like this is for women. Like if you are craving some one-on-one time with me, but one-on-one coaching is too big of a commitment financially and time-wise, like this is perfect for you. So again, if you have any questions, you can check the show notes or reach out to me on Instagram. Let's hop into the episode. Hello, babes, and welcome to another episode of the Endo Babe podcast. So I'm very, very, very excited to share today's podcast guest with you. Her name is Frankie. She was a speaker at the Endo Summit discussing menstruation and endometriosis in the trans and non-binary communities. She is phenomenal. And again, I'm so excited to share her with you guys. So let's dive right in. 
Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Endo Bay Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Frankie. She's a PhD candidate and a lecturer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> and she is just a phenomenal human being. Her energy is infectious. You guys are going to love her, and I cannot wait for this talk today. So welcome, Frankie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Watch me to stumble over my words this whole podcast episode. It's fine. <laughs> um, so I always just start off by asking you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and like how you got into doing what you do now. Yeah. Um, so I'm Frankie. Um, and then I, I publish under Sarah Frank, which is my legal name. Um, but I am a, currently I'm a, I'm a PhD candidate um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, like you said, and I'm in the Department of Sociology. Um, my uh, master's and my bachelor's are both in sociology with some psychology, history, women and gender studies sprinkled in there. Um, and now I actually teach for, I'm a lecturer with the legal studies department here. Um, and I also work at the Madison area technical college teaching LGBTQIA studies. Um, so a little, how did I get to like being a menstruation scholar? Um, so I started uh, graduate school intending to study intimacy, and my first publication is on intersex intimate relationships and um, int how people like uh, people who are intersex come to be in intimate relationships. Um, but after some like switching of my academic career, which was in part due to advising and um, also just uh, like trying to continue on my studies and something I was interested in. Um, I ended up wanting to study the differences in like intimate relationships and couples who talk about menstruation because I think it's really interesting um, and sort of uh, trying to take off just a bite of that. I wanted to talk to queer couples about menstruation and um, in order to minimize that project so that I could actually just like write a master's in, in a process of like two years, I ended up studying on um, focusing on trans and non-binary menstruation. But um, it was the really like the first time someone had done that. And I, I was like totally nervous. <laughs> um, but then I ended up finding the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research, which is totally a thing. Um, I found all of you all in the Endometriosis Summit, like really cool people who do all this awesome menstruation related work and research. So um, I kind of fell into being a menstruation scholar, but it's really cool because, you know, menstruation is part of the axis of like gender and biology. It's, you know, it's in all of our institutions. It's in our supplies. It's in our products. It's in our manufacturing. It's in our laws, you know, like it's pretty cool. Um, so I actually love it. Um, and then I uh, created a class called Law and Sexuality at UW-Madison. It's one of just a handful of classes that focus on law and sex topics. Um, and uh, I fell into that just because my two areas were like bodies and sex and also law and institutions. And, um, it's like the, my favorite class ever. So, um, fell into it actually pretty much. <laughs> That's awesome. I wish there was a class like that when I went to college, <laughs> I probably would have taken it. <laughs> um, so for those of you don't, that don't know, Frankie was a speaker at the end of summit and it's, she specifically did a talk on like trans and non-binary women folk with endometriosis and so I would love for you to expand on like menstruation equality that you're kind of talking about at the summit yeah so um I uh I mean the people I talked to ranged in gender identity in fact nobody had nobody of like the 25 or so people I ended up talking to had the same 
uh, gender identity terminology. So um, mostly in the study, I refer to trans and genderqueer, trans and non-binary people. Um, so trans meaning like those whose gender expression does not align with the socially assigned norms about sex um, and gender sex bodies that we give people at birth. Um, that may include people who do or do not hormonally or surgically alter their bodies. Um, but folks may also be non-binary. So people who reject the sort of binary of, of women and man and male, female notions of the gender sexed world, um, again, may or may not surgically or hormonally alter bodies. And then, um, there's also intersex folks who are, are born, um, with, what we often call like ambiguous genitalia, but it, should, it all that means is like neither male nor female, which is also still a social parameter. Um, so, uh, you know, I work with all of these groups, but I also, you know, there's trans masculine, trans feminine, um, demi, demi boy, demi girl, like there's all these different gender identities that folks use. Um, so, but most, most often I just use the terms trans and non-binary menstruators. Um, so I don't remember what was, <laughs> you asked me your question again. <laughs> no, I just wanted you to kind of expand on like menstruation equality a little bit and like, yeah, what you <laughs> <thought of> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like got Thank away you from for me. identifying <laughs> all of those terms. <laughs> no, and I, yeah, I was thinking, I was like, oh, where was I going with this? Um, so uh, we have in, in the United States in particular, you know, we have such a rigid gender binary system mm -hmm. and in that system, we relegate menstruation to being like a woman's thing. And so that equation with menstruation as a woman's thing means that um, one, we like never think that it involves all genders or all groups, which is strange because all people on the planet are the product of a body that has menstruated at least for some time. Mm -hmm. um, and that um, if most of the world still has cohabiting and romantic couples that are heterosexual, um, that means that most people are in a relationship with someone who has menstruated um, at some point, if not currently in their relationship. So the idea that we just like separate it and don't talk about it is very strange to me. Um, but menstrual, so menstrual equity regularly refers to like um, economic disparities in menstrual products. So um, the fact that menstrual products are considered luxury items by the government um, and that each state has its own regulations and taxation on menstrual products like tampons and pads, which is commonly called the tampon tax. But um, menstrual equity and, and especially like menstruation equality also refers to the inclusion and understanding of trans, non-binary, um, like folks who are outside the scope of our uh, standard conceptions of like men and women um, that menstruate and therefore need products, need um, recognition, and that like healthcare needs to recognize um, these people and also like recognize their wants and needs. And like, um, it, it really involves like healthcare through education too, or like, do we put products in, in bathrooms that are designated for men or gender neutral bathrooms? Or, you know, where do we put menstrual products? How much should we charge for menstrual products? The answer is nothing. Um, <laughs> so um, those kinds of things are really like, Men menstrual equity, menstrual equality. Um, it, it's about uh, seeing menstrual products as necessity items and also being inclusive of women and non-binary genderqueer folks because, um, you know, not all women menstruate. Um, like women may not menstruate for a whole plethora of reasons, but not all folks who menstruate are women either. Um, and so keeping that in mind is really part of menstrual equity. Yeah, 100%. Um, so there's a lot of things in there that you touched on that I kind of want to expand on a little bit. So yeah. how, um, I remember like that was when I put the little question box out, 
and the women that I went to the summit with, like one of their biggest takeaways from your talk was the use of like tampons in the men's bathroom for the trans, like somebody going in there and them not having like a trash can and stuff like that. Like how can like our healthcare system, how can like we as a society be more inclusive for things like that? How do you, where do you think it's going in the future? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know. So the things that I would hope for are not necessarily things I know are happening, but um, I have planted the seeds in the minds of many industries, I hope. Um, And I've also seen some industries take the initiatives on their own. But um, as far as, uh, you know, the people I talked to are concerned, there were really like three main ways that society could change or improve. Um, one of them being just like products in general. So there aren't trans and genderqueer friendly products on the market for the most part. Um, if they are, they're like ridiculously expensive or, um, hard to obtain. You know, there are companies that have made, you know, reusable ones that reusable underwear for periods that have like a boxer brief look to them. Um, but if they're $40 a pair and you need like three to five pairs to start you out, um, that's really unattainable to front like hundred, a hundred plus dollars for menstrual products. Um, but you know, the pads and tampons, um, also have these like very feminine, uh, product, um, that like even the product itself like has, uh, like the, the female symbol or it says, um, you know, uh, like a hashtag, like a girl was part of the always, uh, campaign and it's written on their, their pads and tampons and, um, flowers and butterflies. And of course it's marketed that way too. You know, you have like these, the women with like the big flowy skirts who are like dancing around. So to like be sort of a metaphor for the tampon expanding. <laughs> yeah. And, um, though, so those things generally could change. And I honestly, there's lots of discourse to prove that like, uh, women who menstruate also don't appreciate that kind of thing. Um, and also find that, uh, uh, sort of obnoxious or annoying. Um, but people also, you know, talk to me about how we could have, uh, children's products improved to be more genderqueer as well. Um, so, which would help with some feelings of dysphoria during menarche, that like first menstrual period. And um, I had people talk to me about like, let's get the sort of like a plaid pattern, you know, let's get uh, sharks or something, you know, like to um, make menstruation a little more uh, either gender neutral or a little less like aggressively feminine. Um, always actually started to do this in late 2019. And it was met with a lot of backlash, um, which, I, you know, I'm, I'm met with backlash sometimes too. And people will ask me like, how does it feel to take menstruation away from women? And I'm like, did it belong? Do they want it? <laughs> um, but um, so some of them have started to do that, which is great. And of course, products, it'd be great if products were available for free everywhere. And and because this is a like necessity item, that would be great. But according to most tax codes in most states in the US, um, tampons and pads, um, menstrual products generally are considered luxury items. They are not coded as healthcare items. And so um, they're not considered essential. Um which is fascinating. Um, it actually, because of that, it is possible that when I go to donate, um, products through Madison in the next week or two, um, because menstrual products are not technically essential, I could be fined or arrested for going out during COVID-19. Um, so we'll see because Wisconsin, uh, does not consider, uh, menstrual products health necessities, but like you could go to the, the pharmacy and get like foot inserts or, um, 
you know, like, like insole kind of step things or uh, any medication. You could get band-aids, you could get uh, like specialty shampoos, you could get condoms. All of those things would be covered and tax-free or like things you could spend like a flex account on or use food stamps for. And tampons and pads are not one of those items because they're not considered essential. They're considered luxury. Um, so to do <laughs> <laughs> like what do they expect <laughs> yeah, if they don't think it's essential like <laughs> I don't know well you know we institutionally we like don't talk about menstruation across gender binary lines you know in, in sex ed we sort of separate and it's like we teach boys about erections and we teach girls about menstruation and we're like okay good luck everybody <laughs> sort of like men get pleasure women get suffering and then we like don't ever talk about it institutionally again um but uh yeah so i mean there's just a lack of understanding of how menstruation works i mean even amongst women who've menstruated for a long time they will not necessarily know how the menstrual cycle works um but yeah there's been some like questions about <laughs> whether women can just like stop menstruating or like they choose to, to when that happens <laughs> Some some bizarre Uh, things. Probably a bunch of men sitting around a table being like, hmm, I think this is what happens. Well, if you have like, you know, that you have these uh, government people who are in state government and and federal government who are of the majority men, and then on tax committees, you have even more proportions of men. So it's very hard to actually like get this conversation through (laughs) some of those spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, it would be great. Like New York City has just decided that for the remaining like this year and moving forward that um, menstrual products will be available in schools, um, nine through grades nine through 12, at least um, for free. And, um, but you know, you'll see these other stories of like a high school or a middle school principal saying that, um, if they put tampons and pads in the bathroom for free, that it, uh, would, uh, they, they wouldn't be able to control themselves and like, they'd be irresponsible with pads and tampons. And I don't know what that means. (laughs) Um, so I definitely think that products should be available to all people all the time. Um, but part of the issue is that the United States has such like rigidly sex and gender segregated bathrooms, which isn't true all over the world. So if we had more just like gender neutral bathroom spaces and, or it was okay to just use the stall and or stalls could have menstrual products. Um, but, uh, certainly with, with trans and non-binary folks, they're, they're a problem in, men's bathroom spaces is that they often don't have trash cans, um, either certainly not in the stall, but even outside of the stall. Cause if we, you know, if we've moved to this like, um, automated, no touch hand drying system and water system, like we don't have the need for trash cans. And so, um, you know, in, in women's bathrooms, you often see like these little, uh, containers that are like on the wall where it has like a little door that's on a spring trap. So you got to like pull your hand back real quick. Um, and it has like the little feminine, like the woman sign with the circle and the plus sign on it. And it says like feminine products or whatever. And, um, those should be in every bathroom. Um, so I've actually talked to some folks in the sanitation industry about introducing the idea because it would be great actually profit for them if they put those little trash cans in every single bathroom. Um, so I'm like, Hey, this would actually increase your profit, which I know is partly driving you. Um, so we'll see how far I get with that. Um, everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Just like plant the idea that it's possible. (laughs) You know, they'll come up with it in the middle of the night. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, some of that is just, uh, uh, products, product placement, and just like functionality. You kind of have to like walk yourself through what it's like to use a bathroom and, um, you know, notably that the sound of menstrual products can be dangerous in men's bathroom spaces, just like the sound of, um, 
opening a menstrual product makes a particular sound that is highly gendered. And like people hear the ripping of the tampon or the pad, you know, the, the product, um, you know, or even like the, I have one, like the, the crinkling sound that's like very much a menstrual product. Um, and uh, that is a, like, it's a sound of gender, which is interesting. Um, but then there's also like healthcare. Um, so as far as recommendations for healthcare, um, you know, we wanted to get, oh, it was, we had this push for a while. It was like, doctors should get trained and we should teach them. And that's, that's, that's great. Like we want doctors to have training for LGBTQIA populations. You know, they get about a paragraph about it in med school and nobody ever really talks about it again. Um, but it's, it's great to train physicians and surgeons, that's excellent. But most of healthcare interactions are actually with like admin, nurses, CNA, you know, like different people who work in healthcare who aren't uh, the surgeon or the doctor or physician. Um, and so like if, if only the doctor's trained, then you have people who might misgender somebody who might um, use their dead name or like the, their birth name that they don't go by who aren't respecting pronouns. You know, they hand out these forms that now have like, Oh, your gender and your pronouns. And, um, but then they don't like use it or respect it. Um, Or like medical files that say that someone's been on testosterone for like two years. And then you've got somebody who is asking uh, when was your last menstrual period? And it's like, but I've been on tea for a year and a half or two years. You know, I don't, I don't menstruate. Um, or, you know, just even in, having like an option for healthcare providers to say and like stop and ask, is it okay if we talk about menstruation? Um, is it okay if I ask or what have you, instead of if someone comes in with like a cough and a cold, jumping to menstruation before you even talk to them, you know, having this like very gendered question put out there. Um, and I, I also think that healthcare providers really need to realize that they, um, there's a, there's a phrase that's like um, trans broken arm syndrome, which is sort of where um, a uh, doctor will see somebody for an injury or a different illness. And then because the person seems to be genderqueer or, or trans or non-binary, the doctor will put in their chart, like a diagnosis that they are trans or non-binary. And like, that's a problem. Um, and, and doctors and medical folks have no right to put in what they think is a psychological diagnosis without speaking to the patient about it um, or without getting you know some sort of consent from the patient or talking to them about it. Um, and medical professionals should refrain from asking inappropriate questions. Um, you know, you've got, I have these stories of, uh, people would tell me these stories about like, going to uh, hospitals or clinics and then you have a doctor who's like, oh, so you're trans, like, tell me what it's like, you know, tell me what it's like to be trans or, you know, like, what's your life like, you know, without gender? Like, can you just like describe it to me or, you know, and like uh, these very invasive questions that are completely inappropriate. So um, definitely, yeah, definitely the healthcare system could make some changes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know a couple hospitals that I worked for, we had like we have to do like our yearly learns or whatever online and we had one module you know but it was literally just like you said a piece of paper and then you had to sign it at the bottom <laughs> saying that you've read it yeah that's not, <laughs> i mean it's going to everybody and so like we're supposed to read it but do people actually read those all the way through if they just have to sign it probably not you know and what good is well, that and, 
Yeah, it's hard to retrain your linguistic socialization to use gender neutral terminology or to ask for pronouns. And like, you know, you can't honestly just like read that you're supposed to do something different and then suddenly go do it. Um, We know that people have to like practice it. And like, where do we encourage that kind of practice? And where do we encourage people to sort of like prepare mentally, but not make a big deal out of interacting with folks who are trans and non-binary. But we don't have space for that. And we don't, you know, we just sort of, yeah, we can send out the form that's like, make sure you do this by, you know, without actually practicing or like teaching people how it should look or, you know, giving even like a video demonstration of interactions or things like that. So, um, yeah, it was a thing I'd like to develop better. Um, and like, you know, perhaps that sits in my court as something I can do better, but, um, yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that I thought that I remember you saying at the summit was you can start practicing like now using like they and them. Right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. my, that's a really good point. Yeah. That, um, I think that people should become really comfortable with using they, them pronouns. Um, it, it is, uh, if, if you don't know somebody's gender or, you know, I like to see this like over email too, where like someone will email me and, and it's like, Oh, what did they want? You know, what, it, what do they need? What do they, you know, even if I've never read the email or, you know, otherwise you're, you are assuming what a person identifies as. Um, I encourage people to like put pronouns in their blocks, put pronouns in their, um, like on the internet, anytime they're advertising their services. Or um, I think that it'd be great if people started wearing pronouns near their name tags, um, just as like a comfort thing. But I think that people can start practicing now. Like you're watching TV, refer to everybody as they. Um, You're, uh, you know, you have, you're watching, um, honestly, like anything, any like debate or something like that, try to refer to people only as they try to like remove the gender from spaces. Um, it actually ends up being really hard for people to, to start out doing. Um, and I think I told the story that like my, my partner was having a hard time, like not because he was ill-intentioned, but because he, you know, just like was struggling with, um, using they, them pronouns. And he would kind of beat himself up about it. Like, Oh, I know you're working in this industry. I need to be better at this. Um, and, and he got better once, um, some of his employees, um, were, they them identifying folks um but so we um we had a uh and and one of my professors actually has cats that are are they them um cats and uh so we we ended up getting a fish um the our fish was ruth beta finsberg um and um so we we thought that ruth was you know we were originally just calling her ruth like and saying she was a she um but then probably a week into having Ruth, um, we realized that they were biologically male as far as betas go. Um, but fish tend to be ambiguous. And also um, there's a lot of like gender sex uh, switching roles. That's kind of cool. And and of course humans love to compare ourselves to biology. We're like, if we look at biology, mm-hmm. um, but so we referred to Ruth um, as they, as long as they were around in the apartment, they have since passed on to fish heaven, but um, it really helped actually my partner to practice using they, them like regularly on a daily basis. Cause we use he, she, um, her, him, like we use all these terms all the time and it's sort of just like, it comes out. Like it's just natural and um, people need practice and they need to um, be practicing in their daily lives. Um, it's like, you know, relearning and sort of re-socializing yourself to um uh, use different pronouns and use different language, which is a good thing, but it doesn't just like happen overnight. So I do recommend that people practice, um, on people they interact with, new people they meet, um, people on TV, whatever, in your conversation to just start using they, them as regular pronouns. 
yeah, I think it's, um, a great way to like get started in it. Cause like, I can't, I mean, it's hard when we've been so conditioned since we were born basically to call everybody like him, her ladies, men, guys, whatever. Um, and I know I've definitely been called out like on Instagram being like, hi ladies. And somebody being like, Hey, not everybody with endo is a lady. I'm like, Oh shit. Thank you for calling me out. My bad. I didn't even like realize that I said that, but yeah, totally. It's yeah, but, hey, hey, you all, hi, everyone. Because it, or like, we're so used to, I mean, as teachers, we always are like ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, like that was so normal whenever I was in teaching and education. But, um, and a lot of people will fight me on guys. They're like, well, I say guys about everyone. I'm like, yes, that is the, that is the problem. <laughs> but it can be hard to sort of train yourself out of those things. Um, so I tell people to like practice whenever you can. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. Um, so let's kind of shift a little bit. Cause I know like it, like I'm a woman who identifies as a woman and like endometriosis is really hard to deal with, cope with, to find doctors that are going to listen to you and take you seriously. And like, I can't even imagine how that experience is for somebody who is, is it, I mean, trans, non-binary, um, genderqueer that community already has their own issues of struggling with the healthcare system um, and struggling with an illness that is like a woman's illness, quote unquote, or whatever. So what suggestions do you have for those folks on how to cope with things like that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. Um, So, you know, menstruation has been so long just equated with womanhood. I mean, arguably, we, we very much live in a world where it still is. Um, you know, there are waves being made, but we still think of menstruation as a woman's problem. Um, and so we think of endometriosis as a woman's issue. And um, I mean, I think that the endometriosis or things like PCOS has become the new female hysteria, um, where people will think that like, this is women and females who are just like, being crazy and we don't believe in their pain, you know, and, and we, we have evidence that doctors don't think that women's pain is quite the same, that endometriosis takes so long for a diagnosis because of doctor-patient interactions. Um, so like, how is that magnified? Um, so as far as like um, social psychology sociologists who study like stigma, um, what it means is that folks seeking assistance with endometriosis who are trans and non-binary may face additional stigma and obstacles to receiving proper care and treatment um, just because, and we have data about like how uh, trans and non-binary folks are treated in healthcare settings at all, which is problematic. And so if you sort of um, remove, so it's comfortable to have like women versus men and then to have like women and female having this issue of endometriosis and then, oh yeah, we treat them a little bit differently and, or we don't mean to dot, dot, dot. And then to magnify that with removing that understanding of gender difference, um, entirely, uh, kind of shakes people enough that they don't quite know how to function. Um, and especially if you have doctors who like don't believe in or understand the trans and non-binary queer, gender queer experience of the world and experience in healthcare, um, they're pretty much doomed to repeat and to magnify the stigma and the bias against trans and non-binary folks. Um, I think that the best way around that is for them to be aware of two things. One, that, um, you know, women and, and endometriosis has historically already been treated as this, like, 
ignorable, um, pushed under the rug kind of thing where doctors would be like, oh, but you're just having your period. You're being kind of crazy. You might just be infertile. Like, what are you talking about? Um, doctors need to be aware that that already exists and they need to be working to change that. And then the second piece being um, increasing our understandings of trans and non-binary healthcare in the context of menstruation and endometriosis and any other, you know, characteristically quote unquote female um, ailments um, need to be listed and, and people need to be aware that they do have implicit or explicit biases so that they can correct them. Because um, if people actually don't think that they're doing anything wrong, which, uh, you know, we've got evidence that people don't, don't think that they do anything wrong and they, they will defend you to the death that they're doing it right. Um, then we really don't get any change. Right. Um, so the most likely change is actually the, the most likely change is going to come from either like academics in the university, or it's going to come from other surgeons and medical professionals confronting each other. Um, so I really want to encourage anybody who's in the medical field, um, to, well, you, you know, always, I'm, I'm happy to have these discussions, but I know that I am not a surgeon, you know, I will be a doctor of a different kind. Um, <laughs> so, um, it's actually though surgeons who have the most power, surgeons who write books, surgeons who, um, are attendings to residents, um, you know, older residents to younger residents. It's actually within that establishment that the change needs to come, um, you know, there's, there's some discussion about like, well, patients could just sort of confront doctors and patients could, uh, talk to their physicians, but like the one, we have no data that that will work. Um, but we do have data about authority figures and we do have data about like people who are higher up in social capital being confronted by people who are, um, lower in social capital or who are not the authority. And the truth is that they don't listen and they're not likely to change based on a confrontation from someone lower in social capital or social quote rank than they are. Um, so I honestly think that the, I mean, lots of hospitals and medical establishments are doing this and making change, but like people need to be holding each other accountable in the hallways and, and at hospitals and things like that for this kind of language and transition. Um, so I think, I, I think it's moving there, but it's moving a little bit slow. Being, it's very, very slow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I get there though. I, I agree. I think it will happen like the doctor to doctor and like, I don't know so much do you think they'll have like classes in medical school about stuff like this? Hopefully. Yeah. Or, you know, they have people. Yeah, it would be great. Um, or they have, you know, having surgeons who, um, even like surgeons and medical people who identify as trans and non-binary, um, or, you know, medical professionals or medical anthropologists, medical sociologists, like this information is actually already out there. Um, but either like there's a disconnect between researchers making it to medical establishments or medical establishments reaching out or finding that information or like looking for it and putting the energy in. Yeah. I feel like, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, I was going to say that um, there, I mean, there's some uh, like community value to menstruation and also endometriosis. Like we know that um, people kind of make a community almost out of like, it sounds like to say a community out of suffering sounds really strange, but um, that there's sort of a, like a womanhood about, Oh, it's like a woman thing. We can talk to one another about pain and cramps. And it's like cool to be like, Oh, can I borrow a tampon? You know, like we have like a, a secret culture. Um, but there's evidence, like I had evidence from my study that there, um, there's a bit of exclusion that is felt from folks who are outside of those groups, gender sex wise. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
as like uh, as a community, not not necessarily medically. I think that we also have a responsibility to be very specific about data. You know, it's it's um, one in ten women, um, right, who have an endometriosis diagnosis or who have endometriosis, maybe, you know, also undiagnosed um, because it does kind of go under the radar. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, people will say, well, what are the stats, you know, amongst trans and non-binary folks? Um, And they they would be the same biologically or or medically, but um, we don't have information because we're not looking and we're not asking. Um, And so, I always tell people, you know, we know it's one in 10, um, you know, women as far as endometriosis has been studied, but we have little data about racial diversity, gender and sex diversity, economic diversity, or um, body BMI, um, like body weight, um, or body build kind of uh, diversity. Like we have very little information. And so, um, which is good because it encourages people to say like, oh, we have more to go. We have more things to do and more things to research, but, um, is also, you know, being specific about, um, who is actually affected and who is actually researched and who has been included in that conversation. Right. Yeah. So I was just going to ask like, what's the best way to be inclusive when we're talking about like endo and that you just kind of answered that question a little bit. And I remember you said something like that at the summit, like, one in 10 women have endometriosis and that doesn't include the like trans and non-binary folk who have not been studied yet. Yeah. Um, I think somebody asked me at the summit, like, what would you say? (laughs) Um, And I think on the fly, I was like, I would say, don't panic. Um, <laughs> what I would say though is, um, cause I want people to be, be able to share information that they do have, um, because you know, the, the one in 10 is true. And that also is like helpful for people to see how prevalent endometriosis actually is, um, to be able to talk about infertility, to be able to talk about women. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we like remove women from any equation. Um, what I'm hoping for is that we speak specifically to the groups that we're actually studying and the ones that we do know. So if we know that it's one in 10 women, um, but we also know that it's one in 10 women and we have no idea, um, cause most of the samples are white. So we actually don't know about racial and ethnic diversity. Um, so it's like one in 10 women, but pretty much that research is on white women. Um, and so uh, being a little more specific about that is actually a good thing because it, it can be helpful for um, diversifying communities and also getting information to to um, minority groups. Um, we don't know a lot about class differences, um, and we certainly don't know about BMI differences because we mostly study um, BMI women who are like at the like un- at the quote normal weight or under. Um, so anybody who's like over BMI, like aren't necessarily studied. (laughs) It's like, well, we are leaving out a lot of women at this point. Like, yeah, (laughs) the, it's probably way more than one in 10 women. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the fact that uh, they need to be a little more inclusive with their studying, obviously like skinny white women as in (laughs) the demographic. (laughs) Well, we don't, you know, when we don't know, when we only use these like smaller samples, but then we apply them to a population that is far more racially diverse and, you know, honestly, far more BMI diverse than what we're actually studying. But I, you know, I understand that scientists are often making choices about who to include or exclude for, you know, experimental viability and also replicability. I understand validity. Um, That being said, if you make all these cuts on all the time, I mean, I have a a team of researchers who help me with um, studying medical studies. Like we look at medical research on menstruation and 
probably more than 92, 93% of studies are only on white women, typically college age women, because they're done by research hospitals and that's the demographic they have. Um, so what we know about like women who go about their daily lives, who are, you know, not 21 or under, who are um, racially and economically diverse and who are overweight. Um, and if, you know, like half of uh, the American population would technically meet higher BMI standards. We actually don't know that much about menstruation generally, so let alone endometriosis. Um, so we actually need like an influx of researchers to be uh, doing and studying this topic medically. That would be amazing. Hopefully, <laughs> I know um, endometriosis got some money from the Department of Defense from their like yeah. medical program this year. So I'm wondering... Hopefully, maybe this research, it'll happen. <laughs> maybe. I do too. I mean, I hope that, um, I would want people to take it seriously from both like a fertility perspective. Um, the Department of Defense actually would have a vested interest also when they, um, because they're trying to assist women in the military. Um, but the, like menstruation and menstrual health in the military is like almost not seen. Um, it's mostly uh, sort of make sure you like all women should go to the gynecologist before being deployed because any issues they have having to do with menstruation should be like nipped in the bud before they go abroad, um, or just like solutions to menstruation or problems like um, IUDs and that kind of thing. Um, it would be awesome for um, more inclusive studies to run simultaneously or for people to design like really good informational studies that include also more than like seven people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, having like groups of like 50 people and like making sure that different experiences are met in that sample. Um, and that would really expand our knowledge on endometriosis, but it would also help us to reach people who are suffering from endometriosis who don't know it or who are avoiding healthcare because of their um, status either as a racial minority or a gender minority, um, like trans and non-binary folks, but, or, um, someone who's like overweight or, uh, the combination of those three identities, right? You've got even further magnification of someone who's a person of color, who's also trans non-binary and overweight, who may be severely neglected by our healthcare system. Um, and we wouldn't be looking into it because we are not so aware of our blind spots and we aren't, we don't always have the resources to study, um, in depth, those kinds of things. Oh my gosh, I feel like that could be like an entire podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> How to increase the diversity of endometriosis research. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, is there anything else that you want to share about anything we've talked about today or what we haven't talked about today? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I would say that I actually didn't anticipate interviewing folks when I was talking to trans and non-binary people. I, I didn't anticipate having people in my study who would talk to me about um, different menstruation-related disorders or like uterine disorders, but like people did. And there was a, a, a range of things. Like there are people who had endometriosis, who had PCOS, um, who... Uh, I had people who'd had hysterectomies, um, like different, you know, medical procedures and things that people shared with me. And, um, it's interesting that those become pretty much inextricably linked to someone's sense of self. Um, we know that that happens across the board, but in particular, when it comes to gender sex identity, that those kinds of procedures and healthcare interactions really uh, affect our sense of self. And that's just, that seems to be like a human phenomenon. It's not, like not particular to any one group um, that people who experience medical 
um, trauma or medical encounters, um, medical treatments, that kind of thing, end up carrying that with them. And like it, it forms in and it comes be part of their identity or the choices they make or whatever. And so, um, you know, I, I think that people sort of think you like interact with the healthcare institution and you like go away from it and you interact with it and you go away from it. But, um, you know, uh, I've had multiple surgeries myself and, um, you know, knowing that, okay, well, what happens if I have to go back or like, you know, what happens if I, um, you know, something, if my tumor grows back and like, I need to go back in and like, it, it's traumatizing mm-hmm. and, and that's having like a medium. Okay experience with my most recent doctors, but having a history of like 10 other people who was terrible. Um, And so I, and I think that some of healthcare is realizing this because they've, you know, made the entrance exams most like they put 30% sociology, psychology. Um, They know that the maternal death rate in the United States is because of our racism problem, like that we have women of color dying in childbirth at like really high rates. And that's what's pulling the United States at the very bottom of any kind of economic or technologically developed nations as far as um, maternal mortality. It's because of institutional racism, um, which is hard to detect because people aren't outwardly saying that they're racist, but it's like an implicit and institutional problem, um, which is endometriosis and its ignorance is also an institutional problem. It's an institutional sexism and sort of non-belief, disbelief in pain. So I think I wish that healthcare um, institutions, but also people who interact with healthcare um, understand that those interactions can be uh, life-changing, and they can comprise our sense of self. And that is particularly true in creating a sense of self that is um, not heteronormative, cisgender um, understandings of bodies. And that's it sort of layers that with extra difficulty. So um, I think healthcare would be super important to tackle, but I th- it's hard because anyone outside of healthcare feels like they can't do anything. And, and I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, you know, it, you, everybody I think probably knows somebody who's a doctor or a nurse um, and having those conversations is important. Like uh, sometimes I just ask people like, what is your institution doing about trans and gender, queer, non-binary folks? And it takes them a thought and they're like, gosh, I don't, no. <laughs> it's like, what? Well, yeah, uh, you could be the person to um, pick up that charge and just have conversations at your institution. Yeah. I feel like in situations like that, a lot of people are like, oh, somebody else will do it. You know? Yep. But yeah, you could be that person, stand up, make the change. If every single person, I mean, you said we all know somebody in the healthcare field, how I'm in the healthcare field. Um, if we all pushed for them to be a little more inclusive and to broaden their horizons. <laughs> I yeah. feel like we could all just be the change. Yeah. Um, yeah. You are amazing. I am so excited that you <laughs> were willing to come on the podcast. Um, where can people find you? That's a good question. So I am on the Twitter. Um, people can find me. My Twitter is at teaching frankly. Um, and then my website is also teachingfrankly.com. Uh, could not pay to, well, I could pay to change the domain name, but it's too much money. So we are sticking with it. Um, so Twitter or, um, yeah, my website. And then I have the, the article is actually open access. So it's available for anyone to read if they want to. It's, um, it is on my website and so are the comics that accompany the article. There's like these visual comics that, um, uh, I had somebody, they're amazing. Jack Delaria um, made them and they are with the publication and they're also in color on my website. So um, I encourage people to check that out or like, let me know if they have any questions or thoughts. Um, you know, I'm always talking about this all the time and I love 
<laughs> people can tweet me or email me with anything. Yeah, you're seriously, I was saying your energy is just contagious and I can tell like how much you just like give a shit, you know, which we need. <laughs> we need that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm going to... So many. <laughs> Yes, we got, <laughs> I'm going to put your links underneath the podcast notes for your Twitter, your um, teachingfrankly.com. So you guys can check it out if you want to listen. And then if you are, oh, babes, episode, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Instagram. Thank you so, you so much for tuning in today. Frankie. Every week, you, you guys, guys are amazing. amazing. If you thought this oh, was helpful, again, I would so love it if you subscribed to the podcast yeah, and you left so me a review. It makes me so happy to hear from all of you. I adore you, and I believe that you don't deserve to feel like shit. You deserve to have a normal life, despite endometriosis. So again, I love you, and I hope you have a great day, and I'll see you on next week's episode of the Endo Babe Podcast.